Mistborn, The Final Empire is an epic tale of imprisonment, escape, and rebellion in a world where the heroes collect coins and bounce over houses to defeat spiky-faced creatures. Just imagine a real foggy Super Mario Brothers. And this is The Book Pile. I'm Kellen Erskine. I'm a comic, a father, and as a father, I could never imagine abandoning my daughter, especially if I found out she was a misborn. You know how rich she <laughs> could make me? Kellen is the only fantasy stage dad. <laughs> and I'm David Vance. If I had named my kid Brandon Sanderson, I would have just gone for it. Brandon Zander Anderson Sanderson. <laughs> All right, if you want to give us an early Christmas present, leave a rating and review. Here's one from Coco at Home who says, Saw Kellen Erskine on Dry Bar Comedy and then scoured the interwebs for anything else he's done. Love this podcast so much. It manages to be clever, silly, approachable, informative, and insightful all rolled into one. Wow. This review has the three things Kellen is looking for. Nice compliment, nothing backhanded, and clear preference for Kellen. <laughs> All right, if you want to see me live, I'm going to be in Salt Lake City December 9th through the 10th, and Dallas, Texas, December 16th through the 17th. Go to KellenErskine.com for tickets. Finally, a little reminder, there will be no episode next week. We're taking a little Thanksgiving break. So the next episode after this will be released December 5th. Please don't leave us. <laughs> So I chose this book because my daughter has wanted me to try Sanderson. Uh, plus, I'd been asking around about fantasy books with good magical systems, and this came recommended, meaning that I absolutely love Lord of the Rings, but I'm also never quite sure what Gandalf can do <laughs> or, or why, like, at one moment he's fending off wraiths on dragons with a massive magic beam of light, but then two minutes later he's stumbling around fighting a single orc with his stick. <laughs> For me, this story delivered on that, this uh, cool magical system. I did feel that the story in general dragged in places, but eventually my patience was rewarded, which is the opposite of how Dave feels about most of the classics. <laughs> but I am looking forward to finishing this trilogy. Dave, what did you think? I've read Mistborn and I've read the first two Way of Kings. And every Sanderson book, I wish someone else read it before me and cut out the first third. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoy his endings, but his beginnings for me are really slow. His publisher should give him this rule that he has to start his first draft with introduction and then he's not allowed to start chapter one for 300 pages <laughs> with that said like the ending of the way of king's books are incredible yeah his his books are like how my life is going to turn out <laughs> all right and without further ado here are four lessons that we took from mistborn the final empire lesson one bad people are people this book does something really well, which isn't common in this type of saga, where every bad person is treated like a human. Mm -hmm. For example, Kelsey, or one of our main characters, kills like 11 henchmen. And then I've never seen this before. His brother's like, dude, those people had families. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a lot of them, this was a job to feed their kids. How could you kill 11 humans? Like, did we ever see Legolas lose a wink of sleep over shooting an orc in the head? <laughs> 
He didn't go home later and write all quiet on the Western front. He's cracking jokes with Gimli. And I talked about this, the beginning of Star Wars, a stormtrooper shows mercy and says, set your guns to stun. And Leia just ices him. (laughs) That guy had a whole life. Another example from the book, this world's aristocracy carry out slavery and depression and mass murder. Then our protagonist, Vin, goes undercover in their parties and realizes, oh, they seem like nice people. They just have a messed up ideology. Mm -hmm. And I think once you realize bad people are just people, you also realize, oh, maybe I'm doing bad things and I don't know it either. You know what I mean? Like, I genuinely don't think tobacco executives wake up and say, ah, what a good day to do evil. (laughs) I think they think they're good people. And in fact, after, after I wrote that, I looked up the bios of the leadership at Philip Morris And it's all about how they envision a world where no one smokes. (laughs) I'm like, well, your share price has doubled in the last decade. So you tell me how that happened. (laughs) Asterisk. But as long as they do. (laughs) They should smoke Philip Morris. (laughs) Kids, no one should smoke. And they especially shouldn't smoke the fine toasted tobacco here at yeah, I appreciated that moment when she comes back from all of these balls and galas and she's talking about how fun it was. Uh, and one of the rebels is like, no, every single one of those nobles that you are socializing with is horrible. Uh-huh. And you find out later that they're all not, but some of them are. And I, I appreciated that sort of the illustration of the tribalism that happens during rebellions, that maybe it's a little more gray on both sides and that it just wasn't yeah. straight up like a good guys versus bad guys situation. It's <laughs> it's sort of sadly like how it took me watching the Queen's Gambit bit when I was 38 to be like, oh yeah, I guess not all Russians were bad during the 60s. (laughs) Most of them were just people living in a city trying to get by, Uh you know, but it's just the movies that you see. And I would say even now, like, Russians are for some reason the only nationality where it's still okay to have a very stereotypical villain Uh full on with (laughs) accent and everything. That actor is from Phoenix, you know? (laughs) I bet it's because we haven't had enough Russian immigrants in the U.S. for us to feel bad about having oppressed them. Oh, that's a good point. We need to oppress more Russian immigrants. That's what I've been saying. (laughs) Dave and I are starting a club. I don't, I don't think... No, I, I see what you're starting. I'd like my name taken off this flyer. <laughs> get those Russians out. I mean, get them in first and then get them out of here. <laughs> All right. Lesson two, anchor magic to make it mean something. By the way, anchor magic is also a terrible thing to put on a resume. <laughs> But imagine that reveal when you show a Navy captain that his anchor is missing and he's adrift at sea. Ta-da! <laughs> no, you don't see the whole joke. It's now a uh, bunny rabbit. Uh, where's my check? <laughs> it's just a drowned rabbit hanging from a chain. 
<laughs> so we've brought up price anchoring in a couple of episodes. The idea being that once you associate a price with a product, then we end up judging everything around that product with the same price. It's like what infomercials do. Like, so today we're selling this vacuum mop blender toaster for $40. Can you believe that? Well, here's the thing. If you're one of the first callers, you'll get it for just $19. And apparently it works because they've been doing it for decades. Uh-huh. And I guess a lot of people are like, are you serious? This thing is half off. And they didn't even know this thing existed two minutes ago uh-huh. <laughs> or what it should cause. Think of what I'm saving. <laughs> So the book Divergent does this. It's a post-apocalyptic YA novel that blew up with 90 other ones in the 2000s after the Hunger Games made a billion dollars. And in this Divergent future, when you're like 16, it's decided which attribute is your talent. You're divided into one of five factions, brave, kind, intelligent, selfless, or honest. It's basically Hogwarts with an opposite Slytherin. (laughs) But it's only after anchoring ourselves to these five groups that it actually means something more when you find out that when someone is divergent, that they are simultaneously capable of several of these factions at once. It does seem like this sort of progression is necessary in fantasy storytelling in order for the reader to understand the weight that made up things hold in that world. It's like when you take a picture of a spider next to a quarter so that the recipient of the photo knows how big it is, which, by the way, I would never do unless I was bribing the spider to leave. (laughs) It's a dumb joke. I hate spiders. But with fantasy stories, it's like you first have to explain what a quarter is so that when you bring up the size of the spider, it makes sense. Yeah. So early on in Mistborn, you find that in this world, these people called Alamancers exist who can eat one specific metal and it gives them one specific power, but just one. Like if you swallow tin, you can see farther or brass helps you calm others or copper makes you eventually poop copper i don't actually remember what copper does (laughs) mercury makes you insane just like in our (laughs) magic system (laughs) so then there is this very very rare subset of alamancers who can eat all the metals, which are essentially available in a box of Wheaties, if you read the nutrition fact, <laughs> they can use all those powers. And these special people are called Mistborn. And that's where that comes from. I just think it's interesting how this one move can make ridiculous things seem very important, <laughs> which is sort of the goal of fantasy stories. Yeah. I'm not mocking it. I was in awe with the rest of the world when we saw Luke Skywalker struggle to lift pebbles with the Force, and then Yoda just pulls a whole X-Wing out of the swamp. Mm-hmm. That's why I try to walk anywhere I go with a skinnier guy. <laughs> And a quick disclaimer, if Sanderson is listening, I am aware that Wheaties do not contain pewter. (laughs) All right, lesson three. You can't go undercover without catching feelings. A main storyline is that our protagonist, Vin, goes undercover and attends these fancy parties with the evil aristocrats. And first, it cracks me up that she was a tomboy, and part of her arc is that she learns to love dresses. The narrator keeps reminding you how much hotter she's getting, almost like saying, wouldn't it be great if someone had the personality of a boy, but was still hot like a girl? 
this struck me from the beginning when we meet this girl. It's through this guy, Theron, and it says, His eyes lingered on her. She wore a white shirt and a pair of overalls. Indeed, she was hardly enticing. <laughs> At that point, I was like, Brandon, I just think you don't like overalls. <laughs> like, those don't belong on a lady. She's not a train engineer. <laughs> There's a part toward the end, too, where... All these men in her life are like, you're wearing a dress. How far you've come. <laughs> anyway, Vin goes undercover and she starts really liking these nobles and these parties, even though she's supposed to hate them. And I think sometimes that's how going undercover actually works. I read a book about Kim Philby, who was in British intelligence, but he was actually a Soviet spy. And he claimed to be this great communist and hate the bourgeois lifestyle. But when he was undercover, he spent a ton of money on his own comforts. So how bad was the lifestyle, Kim? <laughs> also, all his best friends were these hoity-toity British men. Anyway, there's that quote from Ender's Game. Perhaps it's impossible to wear an identity without becoming what you pretend to be. <laughs> all right, lesson four. Maybe boring conversations are necessary for building worlds. <laughs> I'm only half joking because overall, I enjoyed this world and this story, and I was very interested in the outcome, which to me is the mark of a good book. However, I was invested in the world story and outcome of Dune, <laughs> which also had tedious conversations and Lord of the Rings. And I'm wondering... If maybe these stories just require chapters that are basically Tuesday morning meetings. <laughs> and I'm being sincere here. Like, I, I can't fathom what it takes to build a world and cultures and cities and magic systems all in a novel. Maybe you do have to have these long conversations about strategies and politics. But I do wonder, like... If Sanderson would have taken another pass at this, maybe he could have just used that strategy that Greg McKeon brings up in Essentialism. Like, maybe just send us a text about what happened at the council. <laughs> but I did, I did want to ask you, Dave, like, what do you think about this? Do you think there is a solve for this sort of thing? Because I haven't read a lot of sprawling fantasies. So I can't say that I've ever read one that was just efficient from beginning to end. I would say Ender's Game, Harry Potter, Red Rising are all examples of fantasy or sci-fi where they explained complex worlds to me, but I was never bored. Like I was in it the entire time. I think a big differentiator is introducing everything in a high stakes and emotional way. Like, we don't just learn Wingardium Leviosa. We learn it in the midst of a conflict between Ron and Hermione, and then it's used in a high-stakes situation against a troll. Whereas I think if everything feels like a textbook, it's a lot harder to be engaged. That's true. I do feel hesitant giving my answer because I'm sure Brandon Sanderson is way better at world building than I am. <laughs> and so I, I get to armchair quarterback what I think he's doing wrong. <laughs> sure. I think I brought it up before. It is a fine line because I've certainly had my act insulted by non-comedians. And it's easy to say, <laughs> well, you get up here and try to make people laugh for an hour. Right. Uh -huh. But it's also that thing where, like, if you've never played a note in your life, you can tell when that soloist messes up. But with that said, 
I just know that I was bored, but I have so many friends and family who were not bored by any part of this book. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not like a clarinet note is off-tuned to one person, but not to another. <laughs> like I said, my patience was rewarded. Um, honestly, I don't know that I would have finished this book if it hadn't been recommended to me. So <laughs> I felt... I, I got to a point where I was like, I would put this down if I wasn't committed to do a podcast on it. And I looked and I had 16 hours left. <laughs> but then it, it did pick up for me. Sure. And that's what I, I want to be fair to like everyone who <laughs> who hasn't clicked off of this episode already. It did have a great satisfying ending. It's basically the opposite of a Stephen King novel. <gasps> they should collab. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's like when a right-handed and left-handed tennis player play doubles together. <laughs> Here's our all-star team. Stephen King starts the book. Sanderson ends the book. Aaron Sorkin writes the dialogue. <laughs> Can you imagine what a weird book that would be? <laughs> starts out horrifying, gets real nerdy. And the entire thing takes place in a courtroom. <laughs> All right, random facts. I realize there's different kinds of fantasy books because some writers are like, yeah, you go through a wardrobe and there's a magic kingdom. And this book is immediately like, so sexual slavery is pretty big here. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> there's a love interest in this book, which I didn't care about because I never care about love between teenagers because it doesn't matter. But this hey hey boys he's not a teenager <laughs> sorry yes <laughs> she's 17 he's 21 so you're right dave <laughs> huge difference anyway his name is ellen and it so bothers me I, you can't i don't care if it's a made-up book you can't just take a girl's name and make it a boy's name by putting a d on the end <laughs> like, sure, yeah. If I ever have twin boys, they're going to be Jessica and Penelope. <laughs> Vin gets captured by these horrifying inquisitors, and they say, We have you right where we want you. Now excuse us while we step away immediately. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know we've been hunting you for years. Yeah, we'll just be a second. <laughs> we just need to grab some boba. <laughs> I do love the image of these steel inquisitors that yeah. uh, Sanderson has created. They're essentially these roided out dudes with metal spikes that have been punched through their eye holes. <laughs> and so the points mm -hmm. are sticking out of the back of their heads and the nubs of the spikes are where their eyes would be. I thought it would have been great epilogue to have just one of these guys um try and go through airport security <laughs> because you can never win with the tsa but i have often fantasized about watching them <laughs> get assaulted uh by a monster after they just groped him <laughs> Yeah, they're they're waving that wand in front of his face. You sure you don't have like like a metal plate from Nam? And he's like, Nope. <laughs> nope, it's it's just my eye spikes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, this happens every time. <laughs> a note that I wrote toward the end, it's really only twenty percent true. But I just wrote down this book is basically a bug's life. <laughs> 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 
<laughs> Go on. <laughs> well, there's more just like these a few giant monsters uh and then reminding everyone else that there's way more of them than there are of the leaders or uh, whatever. <laughs> uh-huh. And also the part when Vin accidentally dumps the leaf full of everyone's food supply into the pond. <laughs> so I've talked about how I worked a mindless water softening job for years, and I used a lot of that time to write jokes. And uh, I always sound like I'm tooting my own horn uh, when I mention that. But then I just have to compare myself to Sanderson, who apparently worked uh, the night shift at a hotel. So while I was busy writing five jokes a day, pouring salt into softener containers, Sanderson was finishing books in a hotel lobby if i ever have twin girls and we stay at a fancy hotel they are dressing up like the shining twins <laughs> that's amazing what would you do as a hotel clerk if you see those kids check in <laughs> i would get off of my big wheel and run <laughs> How great would it be if we found out that Sanderson got his ideas for this book because he was typing away furiously in this hotel and he accidentally reached past his bowl of M&Ms and went for the change bowl just unconsciously <laughs> <laughs> threw some pennies down his throat and he's like <laughs> whoa <laughs> What if instead of almost choking to death just now, uh, it made me fly? <laughs> <laughs> All right, to recap, our favorite lessons from Mistborn, The Final Empire. One, bad people are people. Two, anchor magic to make it mean something. Three, you can't go undercover without catching feelings. Four, maybe boring conversations are necessary for building worlds. And five... If you want to make your dreams come true, apply to Best Western Plus. I love the idea that when Einstein was working as a patent clerk, he's like, okay, so in my world, there's this thing called relativity where if you go really fast, <laughs> I've been submitting everywhere. Someone's going to publish this. I know it. <laughs> That he first sent it out to, like, Random House and Penguin. <laughs> and then a science journal got a hold of it. And he was like, oh, yes, that's real math. They're like, this is mind-blowing revelation about bending space-time. Uh, we're not quite sure what this girl with overalls uh, is doing in this. And he's like, oh, no, don't. don't. She's going to get hot. She'll get hot. 